the J Talk podcast. Yes, 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 yes. Hello and welcome to the J Talk podcast. Ben Maxwell and Johnny Nickel with you. And Johnny, a bumper round of J1 action to review on this week's episode as the the top flight season returned after the international break. Some uh, huge results at both ends of the top flight table. And uh, how are you doing, mate? Yeah, I've just, just come off three Halloween parties in, in two days, so I'm feeling a bit bit worse for wear after that. But I'm really looking forward to, to talking about, as you say, a, a lot of exciting action at, at the top and bottom of the table. And it's become a bit more manageable as there's fewer teams involved and we're, we're getting closer to the end of the, the league campaign. And we've got a very good guest on this week, so I'm looking forward to, to getting into it with both of you. Yes, indeed. And without any further ado, let's welcome in said guest, uh, making a very welcome return to J Talk. It's a Sean Carroll. Uh, Sean, great to have you with us. And um, as we've established in the green room, it's the first time for you and uh, Johnny to be chatting. So, uh, yeah, great to have you on and uh, great to uh, have a, a meeting of the minds here between uh, yourself and Johnny. How's uh, things with you? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure I call a meeting of the minds. That's quite over the top. Um, I'm good, cheers. I think Johnny's been to more Halloween parties in the last two days and I've been to in my entire life. That is that is some going. How how did you manage to go to so many? Uh, I was working at all of them. I, I wasn't I wasn't there by choice. Definitely not. Oh okay okay. I thought it was like you know Halloween parties like you were out you know dressed up as as Mario or something knocking down <laughs> tequila shots. Okay. Sadly not. No. He's <laughs> saving that for uh, for this weekend. I think Sean. Uh, yeah, be a huge weekend out on the town. I'm sure for uh, for Johnny the the uh, the proper <laughs> Halloween parties ahead of uh, the big event. But uh, yes, um, as I segue on, I don't think I can link Halloween uh, to J1 off the top of my head at this stage. But um, yeah, two huge games at the the top of the table that we'll lead off the episode with. And um, yeah, there are also some big results, as I said, at the foot of the table as well as uh, the relegation dogfight gets ever tighter. And uh, after match day 30, we now have uh, four games remaining in the season. So let's begin, uh, Johnny, at the National Stadium where Kobe hosted Kashima. It took uh, both of us by surprise. It took Sean by surprise, uh, but uh, 53,000 rocked up. So um, plenty of people were aware the game was on there, just that we weren't and we didn't mention it on last week's episode. So apologies to anybody visiting Japan who might have turned up to the Novo Stadium in Kobe around uh, one o'clock on the Saturday expecting to see a football game. Well, yeah, the teams are up in Tokyo instead. Um, So interestingly enough, Kobe with, uh, yes, not many games left in the season, Johnny, were, uh, were drawn at the Nationals. So in effect, they've given up a home game this late in the season. It could have had an effect on them, I suppose, but they were at their best and uh, swept aside Antlers by uh, three goals to one. A terrific performance from the league leaders. Yeah, I think we, we speculated last week, didn't we, that, that Antlers would be kind of stinging from the 5-1 loss that they had at home to Vissel uh, in the first game. Uh, and it, it seemed like maybe they showed a bit too much respect to Vissel. They were very, very cautious about the, the kind of damage Vissel could do. And in the end, it was actually quite surprising how, how, how easy or how simple this victory was. A, a game that really looked tough for, from many weeks ago actually turned out to be quite, quite a comfortable uh, victory. I think that was the stats I, shot, I, I saw. It was like eight shots to one for Vissel in the, the first half and then 15 to seven in the second half. I mean, they scored three goals. They hit the post and, and Kashima's goal didn't come until it didn't really matter. 
So I think, yeah, for, for Takayuki Yoshida and, and VCL, basically, um, uh, other than what happened in the other game, uh, everything went right from, from things they could actually could control. Uh, I was really impressed. I think uh, Honda is, yeah, I did not rate as a signing, as you know, at the start of the season. He played it left back in this game, filling in for Hatsusei, and he, he's able to cover centre-back and left-back competently. Um, Ide is another one. I think I, I think I spat my drink out when I saw that signing. They made like, what on earth are they, they doing? But he... He turned up with a goal and an assist here in a really important game. And Sasaki, I think we, we were talking in the green room a few weeks ago about potential national team players over the coming months. And with his two goals here, he really kind of, you know, he he, he really stepped up and, and showed his credentials. So, yeah, a, a really good victory for, for Vissel. I, I will say with the, the 53,000 attendance, the, the thing that really bugs me is like false equivalence when it's like highest ever home attendance for Vissel Kobe, whereas, you know, it's, it's not in their home stadium and it's, it's marketed in a whole different way, and we were speculating you know, a lot of free tickets given out. I don't think you can really just go about claiming, as they have been doing on Twitter, about you know it's the biggest ever home attendance without adding the, all the context, kind of the, the asterisks is below that. But that, that's me going off on a, a bit of a rant. But we, we've got Visa and Kashima to talk about. So, Sean, I wanted to ask you maybe a little bit about um, about well, Visa in general, but also about Yoshida, the coach, because I, I know you watch a lot of, of J2 and. We would have seen he, he didn't have a particularly great spell at, at Nagasaki, and um, yeah, he's had a few spells in charge of Visa with, with varying results. But you know, what do you make of, of the kind of job he's done this season, and you know, how much influence is it him, or how much is it the players? Like, what do you think? Um, yeah, it's a difficult one. I think I've always got the impression from his from his spells at Visa that that he's popular with the players, and I think that. It sounds obvious, but I think that is something that maybe, you know, is often overlooked. These days you talk about the tactics or whatever else of the players coming in or what, uh, sort of the recruitment and things. But I think so much of it is if you can get the players on board, if they like the coach, it just it prevents so many other issues coming in. And I think in his first two, maybe three spells, I forget, I forget which one it is, if you include like caretaker spells or whatever. But I, I do think there's... um an element of like they were just you know it was almost an impossible job because it wasn't a proper football club it was a it was a stage for these these celebrities who'd come over to play so you couldn't manage them um what what exactly changed to to enable Mikitani to let him essentially drop Andres Iniesta at the start of this season and and play the the team that he felt was best I that I think that is more the key I don't think you know I mean anybody who's Within reason, anyone who's coaching professionally is obviously a decent, you know, they know what they're doing when it comes to setting teams up, preparing teams um, physically and whatever, tactically ahead of games. And then there's just so many variables that come into it. Um, So I think more so than him suddenly, you know, elevating his, his abilities as a coach, I think it's just the fact that he's finally been allowed to to just do what, what he wants to do. Um mm-hmm. And yeah, we saw obviously with the comments that Iniesta made when he announced he was leaving, the kind of veiled criticism of the coach. And I think Yoshida kind of dealt with that well. He never sort of reacted. He didn't say much about it. He took part in all of the nonsense with the the Barcelona friendly and, and Iniesta's last game. He started him and, and kind of rode it out well. Um, he's always seemed pretty, pretty dignified um, in press conferences and things. And yeah, I mean, like you said, some of the signings they've made... Um, just didn't look like anything anything remarkable either. But um, whether it was um, Yoshida picking these players because he felt they would fit or whether it's just, you know, 
if if you throw enough um, enough stuff at the wall, eventually something will stick. But I often think that's kind of overlooked in football is that you need to build a team that works together and it's not always the 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 names i guess we get it more often with the national team where moriasu just gets stick because he hasn't picked this guy or he has picked that guy and you know it's not always a case of just it's not like football manager or, or fantasy football where you just go like well these are all the best players put them out there it's going to work and, and bringing in players like honda who'd been pretty unremarkable at sort of j1 j2 level like you said haruya ide was looked good when he first broke through at jeff and then didn't really do much at Gamba, I think he was at Verdi before he went back yeah. to Vissel, and yeah, was in and out of the team, looked just like a sort of steady player. And um, yeah, everybody has has performed um, to the best of, or sometimes sort of beyond their ability for Kobe this year, and it just looks like everything has has clicked into place for them when when they needed it. Whether that is because you know all of the the stars are gone and they can just focus on on playing games as opposed to having to deal with the circus around that is obviously we can only really speculate but um yeah i think that's probably paid a played a fairly big role in their their sort of strong showing this year yeah, i think that's it's a re- really interesting answer and then maybe to just flip it over to, to kashima because you know we have had them in our title race but i think yeah they're, they're finally there i don't think anyone can really realistically claim that they're in the title race after the, the result and the performance against Sell, but I think we've had this question we wanted to ask guests for, for a few weeks, so we'll, we'll fire it off to you. They're down to six now, but basically the last 10 years they've they finished in the top five every year, and they've only been champions once. So, you know, if you look at like, all the other teams like Kawasaki are mid-table this year, Marinos, if you were back 10 years, they've probably had about as many seasons challenging for the title as they have, like, way off the pace. And you've got teams like Gamba or Urawa who've had t- good, solid seasons in the top three, but also finished in the the bottom half but Kashima are just always there but you know that that one title in 10 years I, I kind of compared it maybe to late uh, like Wenger era Arsenal where they're always around fourth or fifth but but never there so yeah, I was kind of wondering like thinking about them they've got this kind of conservative style they've got they bring back all the players that used to play for them who come back from Europe or the the coach is an ex-player and then when they tried something a bit different with with Rene Weiler that didn't really last very long they were kind of reports that the players not been particularly happy so I mean what, what I wanted to ask you is do you think Kashima need to change in order to challenge for more titles and maybe more, more importantly will, will they change if they, if they have to? Um, well I think to answer the second point I don't think they will I think mm-hmm. in a sense this is what I quite like about Kashima is they're one of the few clubs in Japan that do seem to have that kind of consistent identity of what they want to do what they want to be how they want to play how they want to perform as a club like off the pitch too, how they want to be viewed. Um, so I don't think they will try to change in that sense. Um, and in terms of why they haven't sort of enjoyed the success that they had early on, I think it's there's probably a couple of reasons that spring immediately to mind. First of all, it's just the other clubs now are better. Mm. I think, you know, a lot of their success came fairly on early on in the J League. If you think about it now, I mean, where are we now in the 30th season? I moved here in 2009 and they were like, I think they just won three in a row. Did they win yeah. 2009? Yeah, they'd won their third in a row. So seven, eight, nine. They'd won it before that a fair bit. You know, they're, they're still the most successful club in Japan, but a lot of those titles came way back when. I think now there's just, you know, other clubs have got up to speed 
um, it, it might be overstated to an extent, but I think the impact of someone like Zico early on in Kashima really enabled them to to establish themselves as like you know the club with that kind of solid foundation. Um, so I think the fact that just other teams now are are getting better, the clubs are getting better in the, in the way that they do things. Um, and obviously, you know, we've seen that with so many different clubs. Um, the last five years, maybe not so much with just two teams winning it, but so many different clubs have won the league. It looks like, which we'll obviously come on to in a bit, but it looks like this year could see another new new club winning J1. So it's, you know, it's just that, it's, it's the cliche, but the J League is such a kind of open league that, you know, there's, there's so many teams that can win it. And I think the other issue they've had is, um, they just, you know, again, it happens to everyone to a degree, but maybe because they have a reputation for success and, and developing good players, you, you just lose players quicker now. They've lost, you know, you don't really get the chance to build a team over two, three, four years anymore. Even players that are, I mean, I can't even remember his name. Is it Tsunemoto? Was the yes. right back that left? Yeah. I don't, I couldn't tell you much about how he plays really because I didn't really see that much of him he, he played maybe a couple of years as mm-hmm. a regular maybe not even that and then he got a move um obviously Corky Machida as well when um they lost the guy Abe who went to Barcelona mm-hmm. B team didn't really do much now he's come back and I think he's injured but he's at Reds now and like you just you lose players so quickly now that it's so hard to with what Kashima want to do, which is having a, a core and a way of playing and bringing players through from their kind of their youth setup and their their sort of um what they call like the sister teams they have in the region to bring through and develop into this identity. It is hard to follow that through when if a player does get into the team within six months, eighteen months, they're going to play in Switzerland or, or Belgium. Like you, you're then left with bringing in players who, you know, not not to disrespect them, but players like Nakama or whatever, who are decent J1 players, but nothing special. Like, would they have been playing for players of that level? Would they have been playing for Kashima when it was like Motoyama and Ogasawara and, and that lot winning the leagues? I don't know. So it, it does feel like now they're kind of sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place where it's it's hard to achieve what they were achieving and want to achieve because, you know, the rug's being pulled out from underneath them so often when their players do head off. And then, like you said, when they come back, um, Yuma Suzuki, obviously, Gakushiba Saki's now come back. Um, Atsuta Uchida came back at the end of his career as well. Like, you know, those players are still good. And in a way, I like the fact that these players come back from, from Europe and go back to their original clubs. But on the flip side of that, you, they're taking positions from from other players that could be coming through are they still as motivated are they still as good as they were six seven eight nine ten years ago obviously it varies from case to case um but yeah i just feel like there's there are those kind of difficulties um that that have come into it but yeah it certainly is surprising when you say they've only won one in 10 years that does sound um obviously odd when you think of of kashima antlers and, and their history and what they what they represent as a as a club in the j-league yeah, absolutely. All right. And we know how difficult they can be uh, to play against on their day. So, again, that makes uh, Saturday afternoon's performance by Kobe all the more impressive. And, uh, yeah, a 3-1 victory for the leaders. Uh, they've uh, held serve and, uh, yeah, maintained their four-point gap over Yokohama F. Marinos, who we'll come on to in the next game. But as uh, Johnny mentioned earlier, an assist and a goal 
for Haruya Ide are both coming in the first half. For Ide crossed for Daiju Sasaki, who headed in from just inside the penalty spot in the 16th minute. And then just before halftime, Yoshinori Muto crossed and uh, Ide himself headed in for 2-0. Uh, inside the last 10 minutes, uh, Muto was uh, released through the centre by a terrific through ball by Yuya Osako, but was uh, denied by the Antlers keeper Tomoki Hayakawa. But from the resulting corner, Jean Patrick's header hit the post and bounced right to Sasaki, who lashed the loose ball high into the net to wrap up the three points. Uh, the goal surviving a uh, VAR check with Muto offside, but standing in between a Kashima defender and Hayakawa. So apparently that was okay. Uh, according to the referee. Then uh, Yuta Matsumura's uh, terrific, although slightly deflected, strike from inside the D in the 91st minute turned out to be a mere consolation for Antlers. So uh, I guess we've had a couple of bigger picture questions already uh, for you, Sean. One about Mr. Yoshida and also about Kashima as a, as a whole. But uh, in terms of Kobe and how they've... Um, uh, been able to work through these uh, these fixtures as the uh, the finish line edges ever closer. We know they've never been in a situation like this uh, before. They've never been this close to a top flight title. And um, with that in mind, I mean, there's obviously still time for them to um, to have a meltdown. To, we've we've seen it happen before. Stranger things have happened in the J League, no question. But yeah, I guess uh, how impressed have you been with the way they've been able to work through? Um, this season, obviously, last year was just an absolute horrendous horror show from uh, from pretty much start to finish. But they've um, yeah they've been uh, so impressive throughout this campaign. And yeah, as as the as I said, as the finish line edges ever ever closer, they've uh, they've appeared to hold their nerve. And uh, and you know the big win against F Marinos a couple of weeks ago, they've they've continued to prove their mettle. So. It's it's just really been impressive, and and um, who are the players that have stood out for you as they've uh, have edged closer to a first ever top flight title? Yeah, I think what what you said is right. I think it's the what's been so almost surprising is the way they've dealt with it um, with the minimum of fuss. Uh, I was at the Marinos game and was really surprised at just how efficiently Colbe won the game. Um, they just shut Marinos down, took their chances, looked completely in control. Seeing the players speaking after the game too, they just looked really focused, really, um, yeah, just just sort of not not fussed about the any kind of pressure. Obviously, after that, they still knew they still, um, you know, they had Kashima next. So they were, you know, as always, players you know, would always say, oh, nothing's decided yet, whatever. But it really seemed like they just had this kind of, this focus um and that you know they weren't weren't getting carried away but that they were all at the same time they were confident in their ability and i think that um that is the key i think these uh, how do you put it i think players like gotok sakai and and osaka who've been in, over in europe and and done reasonably well there i don't think either of them um well maybe gotok had a, a couple of years i think he was captain but no, they they didn't really push on to a to a the high high level, but they did well. They had decent careers there, and I think coming back to the J League now it enables them to kind of, in a sense, put it in perspective. They've played in uh, far more intimidating atmospheres at, at a higher level. So even when it comes to a game against the the other team at the top of the table, they they know how to manage those situations. 
Um, so yeah, I think you know those two. Obviously, all cycles um, scoring scoring record this season has been has been fantastic, and his all round play. You know, everyone. I think he's sort of nailed on to be the the player of the year. Um, assuming he'll see it out now. Um, but yeah, I think someone like Gortoku, who in in the interviews I've seen with him too, he seems like he's got his head screwed on. He talks um, sort of very intelligently about the game and I think having players around you know having you know it was a long long time ago now but when I played if you had players like that in in the team that you know just they give you it's kind of exude a sense of calmness and I think that just helps to keep keep everyone on track um Hotaru Yamaguchi as well who was was excellent um maybe 10 years ago when he first broke out and then just seemed to really hit his ceiling and then never get get anywhere near it again since um this year has been has been excellent again in the middle of the park um obviously he's had different players alongside him whether it was um Saito or whether it's been Daiju Sasaki or whether it's been Ide or Leo Osaki or you know, whoever's there he's just been the kind of constant who has has done excellently defensively and you know he's become a threat again kind of in and around the area with his with his shots and his assists so Yamaguchi as well I think has really stood out um and yeah of course um Ben, ben won't like to hear this, but Yoshinori Muto as well looks not quite as good as he was when he emerged at Tokyo. But I mean, that assist at the weekend was, was outrageous. Watching that, I only I only saw the highlights of the game. Um, but yeah, what what a cross that was um, for the goal. And he's as well just looked looked really confident again. He had a couple of rough years, obviously at the end of his time in Europe. Um, but again, when he came through at Tokyo, he always seemed like he was a really kind of like diligent, hardworking, serious kind of guy. And he's, you know, if you've got him and Osaka as the kind of your two, two of your your three up front, Yamaguchi in the middle, Sakai at the back, that's a pretty solid core. Um, and then as as Johnny touched upon before, these kind of, uh, again, no disrespect to them, but sort of the unremarkable players making up the squad as well have all have all stepped up and, and matched that level to make sure that the team as a whole is knows what it's doing and, and delivers. Yeah, absolutely. A superb performance from, from Vissel at the national stadium on a Saturday afternoon. And yes, as, as we've said, they've maintained their four point gap at the top over F Marino's just uh, one more. I don't know whether we should save this for an, an end of season wrap up pod or not, but Sean, this was the sixth, top flight game that has been played at the national stadium uh, this year. Um, five different teams have now had a, had a go at hosting one overall. I mean, I think we know that um, the, the crowd numbers have been um, inflated by, by freebies um, by, you know, promotions to, to, to make sure that the stadium wasn't half empty. And I mean, the crowd numbers look uh, obviously very good on paper over 53,000 here for a team from uh, Hyogo playing against a team from Ibaraki and it's not a cup final. So, um, I mean, obviously it was a big league game, but um, yeah, you wouldn't normally expect a a big crowd like that uh, to, to rock up if everybody was paying full whack. But um, I, I guess slightly bigger picture, should there be, should there have been this many games at the national stadium, um, this year in terms of league games and also as a whole, the, the J League's 30th anniversary. Um, 
has it moved the needle at all? Do you think? Um, I mean, I, I remember earlier on in the year, I think the, uh, the the best eleven announcement and the 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 show where they had like you know the best goal ever in the history of the J League and uh, and things like that was on at like uh, one o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday or something. Um, so I, I'm I'm not sure the way they've rolled it out has been um, all that effective and whether it's um, garnered as much attention as it might have done if it was slightly better organised, but um again yeah i haven't organized my question particularly well but um yeah i guess the the games at the national stadium and and the impact of the the 30th anniversary um has it had the uh, the impact that the j league would have wanted do you think um i think a no it's stupid to have games at national stadium if the j league wanted to show off how the league had grown you're far better off to let teams play at home give them a bit of financial support, whatever, to get free tickets out, fill up the stadiums and show the world. Look, even places like Kashima, where there's only, I don't know how many people live in Kashima. Let's say it's 50,000. Even these places can can get sold out stadiums. Focus on J2, J3, that the, the newer clubs that are getting big crowds that are doing well to show how the game has grown. I think that would have been far better than, than this stupid kind of sort of fake fake occasions like you said it's not a cup final the clubs don't really like it the fans don't really like it, it it's just silly um and i but i think also at the same time these kind of things the 30th anniversary it only really matters to the league and i think they feel like they have to do something because it's their 30th anniversary i mean what what does it really mean if you're a fan of Cereso osaka or sagan tossi like well so what the league started 30 years ago it's it's something that i think the league and the media kind of need to you know it gives you something to hang coverage off of and whatever but yeah like you know the best 11 in the history of the j league wolf it ends up just being they have to pick you know the same players that they always pick when you make these lists of the best ever in japan because you need to include shunsuke you need to include this guy you need to include this you know it's it's so these things are a so silly and so hard to define they're so subjective so i, I feel like i don't even know if the j league really knew what they wanted to achieve from these these events or these guys, I think it was just they felt like, well, we need to do something. And I, I don't know if this was the case, but, you know, they built this huge national stadium, whether whoever owns the national stadium, you know, they need to, to somehow try and claw back some of the, the the millions and millions of dollars that were spent on building this thing for an Olympics that, that didn't really happen in the sense that, you know, there was no fans or anything. So I'm assuming they probably need to claw back money, whether there were contracts, you know, with with the football, with the J-League, with the JFA to play a certain number of games. I honestly don't know. I'm just speculating there. But I feel like there's also an element of that. I think it happened with Wembley for a bit in England too, where they were trying to kind of desperately use it as much as possible. You now get FA Cup finals, uh, semi-finals, sorry, played there as well. And there are suggestions that that's in part to just kind of try and, you know, prevent these things from being um, quite so big white elephants. But, um, yeah, I think in general that's that's... I think it's all just very silly and they, they could have, if they really wanted to show how the game had grown, there were, there were better ways to do it. Yeah, fair enough then. And I mean, yeah, Johnny, this is Kobe's second to last home game of the season. They play three of their last four uh, away from home. And yeah, they've, uh, they've, uh, well, again, if they've had to travel up to Tokyo, whether they've requested this particular game uh, throughout their fixture list, be a, a National Stadium home game or not, the start of the year or when the, the season was being planned, I, I don't know. But um, 
I, I don't know whether they anticipated being in the thick of a title race, so maybe they didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal. But um, yeah, as it turned out, uh, as we said, they um, yeah they played as composed a, a game as if they were on home turf at the Novi Stadium. So that's um, yeah hugely to their credit, and uh, they continue to look the goods as they check uh, yet another um, yeah big fixture of their remaining uh, calendar, Johnny. So yeah, three of the last four. Uh, away for Kobe, they've uh, they've got a dogfighter next, and then they've got um, I guess now the the, the third place team uh, Urawa, who are the now definitely the outsiders for the title ra- race, but still maybe the the only other team other than uh, F Marinos that could possibly win it. So the next two will be a massive tests as well. But uh, as we've said, they've they've just checked everything off along the way. Yeah, I have to think whoever organised this doesn't really have anything to do with with professional football as it's played because it, it doesn't really make a, a lot of sense considering you know the, the game has been played essentially much closer to Kashima than it is to to Vissel. and I, I know you can take the, the Shinkansen along from from Kobe to uh, Shinagawa and, and get to the stadium quite easily or you can fly but th- those options are pr- pretty expensive. I, I really don't it doesn't make an awful lot of sense for for a Vissel supporter if you're used to going to the uh, Neuvier Stadium to, to then suddenly have to go to the National Stadium and of course Neuvier is one of these stadiums that's like you know football specific so that you're then having to watch your team with a massive running track and probably miles away from the field. It, I don't know if I'm just a bit negative because the one time I went was a, an away game gamba away to FC Tokyo and the rain was just blowing into the away supporters which wasn't a particularly nice experience but yeah as, as you say that Visa, I think they're very much in the driving seat they're, so that's the, the four points ahead of Marinos and Eight ahead of Reds, and I think you know we'll we'll talk about these other teams like Shonan or, or Gamba later. But if you're VCL, you have to think you, you would, even though they're away from home, you'd have to fancy them to beat Shonan and, and Gamba, especially if it comes down to the last day of the season and Gamba have nothing to play for and VCL have to win to win the title. I'd I'd stake lots and lots of money on that if 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 I was a betting man. And you know, Grampus again, we'll get to them. They they did win this weekend, but I don't think they convinced anyone they were they were particularly back. So. You know, I think we still basically only need to get yeah nine, nine points. So they could essentially lose two reds and still still that would take Marinos would have to win all the remaining games and Vissel would still win the title. So yeah, I think as, as Sean mentioned, you know, talking to the players and they've got that that kind of core in defence, midfield and attack of, of experienced players who've who've played overseas, who've played for the national team, played in World Cups. I, I don't. I, I think it's a matter of time. I don't want to put a curse on them, but yeah, Nagoya is a much easier game than it looked a few weeks ago. And yeah, I'd say actually Shonan's probably harder than, than Nagoya, but Gamba's probably the easiest one. And the, the big difference, I think, between VCL and the, the other two teams is that they're not in the ACL. So they've only got four games left this season, whereas Marinos have seven games left, um, including two outside Japan. And Reds have eight games left because they're in the, the Levan Cup final. And I think they have to leave Japan once. So you know, they can basically, I know they have some injuries, but anyone who's fit can essentially play those four games. They don't have to rotate. So I think I would say the ball is very much in, in their court and it's, it's theirs, yeah, theirs to lose at the moment. Yep, absolutely. So, Johnny, I'll come straight back to you as we move on to the uh, F. Marinoza Sapporo game at the Nissan Stadium that kicked off at the same time, 2 o'clock on uh, Saturday afternoon. So if we were doing this clock watch 
uh, style. It obviously, um, it would be uh, yeah, it would have been a very exciting first 20 minutes as there was goals in both games. Daiju Sasaki gave Kobe the lead in the 16th minute, as I said, and then in the 19th minute at the Nissan Stadium, uh, Rio Miichi was a sent clear by uh, Anderson Lopez and clipped a, a lovely finish across Shun Takagi and uh, into the net. So it was 1-0 to the hosts uh, very early in both games. But uh, while Kobe were able to cruise uh, pretty much throughout their their entire game against Antlers, it did appear that Sapporo gave uh, the F Marino's backline a bit more of a, a stern test. Uh, Daiki Suga hit the, uh, hit the bar with uh, a, a, an improvised left foot shot on the half hour, and then early in the second half, Jun Ichimori had to deny Lucas Fernandez and uh, Yuya Asano as uh, Sapporo went in search of an equaliser. So, um, yeah, I guess true to form, uh, Sapporo weren't uh, all that concerned about being behind. They were uh, going to co- continue on playing their football. And, uh, yeah, F. Marinos uh, certainly didn't have things all their own way at the Nissan. Yeah, well, obviously, Marinos have the defensive issues of their own, and they fielded a centre-back duo of Takuya Kida back there with, with Sanito, which you know it, it might have caused been caused for concern before the game, but I think that they they played a, a pretty smart game, and also I think Sapporo it was it was you know they've lit up the league in in good and bad ways for the past few years, but I think this was all the the things that would frustrate their, their supporters, you know. We'll get on to the, the other goals later on, but, but three of Marinos four goals were counter-attacks. And I think I basically put in my notes that the, the first goal Marinos scored is, is very, very simple to, is very, very similar to the, the goal Nagoya scored against them a few weeks ago, just with a bit more finesse in that, that Lopez wasn't just hoofing the ball clear from his own box. He'd actually kind of picked out Miyaichi and it's a, it's a lovely finish. And uh, I'm glad he scored because that actually gave me the chance to, to mention what, what Sean's on because I, I saw your you're a bit for the J-League uh, International YouTube channel and you're interviewing Miyaichi and you know, as, as an English teacher myself, it was quite quite amusing to see him pr- do a, a flawless English interview and then, then ask you at the end if his English is okay. I think that, that really struck home as a, as a common experience in, in Japan. Um, but yeah, was, after his injury problems, it was really good to see him get on the score sheet. And then as, as you say, Ben, um, you know, Sapporo did have chances, but I think was, there were 33 shots in total between these two teams. Um, but yeah, a lot of the chances that they tended to be the, the Suga ones were good shots, but they were from distance. And then a couple of times they did kind of get close to the goal. They were they were very very wasteful. So I think that that trio of of you know having a lot of shots but but wasting them or having them from from distance and also just getting caught on the counter attack at, at the worst possible times, being being left like wide open. And Marinos are not a team you want to to be doing that against. I think it all conspired to to eventually give a a very the scoreline eventually ended up having a, a very one-sided look to it. Indeed, and it was to be the much-maligned Kenyu Sugimoto, who uh, proved to be the difference maker, uh, Sean, after coming on late in the piece. Uh, five minutes after his introduction, uh, Sam's favourite player of uh, all time played the ball out to uh, Jan Mateus on the right, uh, continued into the box, and with the, the ball slightly behind him, he met uh, Jan Mateus' cross with a uh, manufactured looping volley that uh, arced over Takagi and in at the far post. So, uh, yes, if you had uh, Kenyu Sugimoto as the difference maker marked on your bingo card, then, uh, yes, you were uh, yes singing his name 
to the rafters uh, after the game. Um, yeah, um, I, I'm not really sure he knew what he was doing, Sean, but it did turn out to be obviously the uh, uh, the, the key moment, I suppose, of the game uh, late on to, to make things a little bit more comfortable for, uh, for F. Marinos before Elba scored a third. And I mean, there was even time for two more goals in stoppage time. But um, yeah, what an, what an introduction from Sugimoto. Kenya Sugimoto always knows what he's doing, Ben. <laughs> he's been he's been uh, flying under the radar on purpose um, for the past few years um, in order to be the difference maker in the title race. You heard it here first. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think he's he's one of those. He's a frustrating one because he's clearly a good player. There's so many of them in in the J League and, and Japanese players in particular that they they clearly are good players. And when they first emerge, they they look look so good and then they just struggle to really kick on um and whether it's just because they can't whether it's just because that is their level and they, they're unable to to add more strings to their bow whether it's the coaching they receive whether they don't have the motivation um but I mean, he clearly is a good player when you, when you watch him live you can see that he's got everything you need to have and it just doesn't quite um doesn't quite come off for him um, and yeah, he's, you know, he's still had a, a reasonably good career. He's played for a lot of a lot of decent clubs. I'm sure he's made plenty of money. Um, and what? How old is he now? He's probably he's probably not even that old, is he? What is he? Thirty? Is he even thirty? Thirty-one maybe? Thirty? I think he's thirty. Yeah. Mm. So you know, in the J League, he's still got possibly another decade to go. So um, I don't know. Yeah, it's um. As you said, it was a it was an interesting goal. Whether he meant it or not, uh, I don't know. And this, yeah, I mean, if you'd if you'd asked me beforehand what's the score going to be in this game, I probably would have said four three, one way or the other. Um, as you said, Sapporo are just it must be frustrating. I mean, I'm not I have I don't have a dog in the fight, but there's something about uh, Mihailo Petrovic that in part I really 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 like him, and in part I find him so frustrating, and I can't quite sort of find find the balance between it's like you said if you support one of his teams the fact he's just so dedicated to the way he wants his teams to play and even if you're playing against Marinos he's quite happy to leave those gaps for them to exploit on the counter and then there's other times where you're just like if you just like if you just brushed up on these aspects of how you set your teams up he could have won so much more in his time in Japan with with Hiroshima with Urawa with Sapporo um, like Jay Bothroyd mentioned it when I interviewed him for the book in the sense that the the year that Sapporo nearly got into the ACL um, I forget when it was now it was probably about 2018 maybe 18 or 19 mm-hmm. where they finished quite high up in the table and it wasn't he didn't didn't say anything against against Petrovic personally but he was talking about the fact that the team just kind of bottled it at the last minute as a whole and how frustrating it was when they I think they just had to basically either not lose or if they'd won their last game against Hiroshima, they'd have been guaranteed the ACL. Um, and I think that kind of sums up Petrovic's whole time. There's, Hiroshima were always kind of a, almost not quite same at Reds. I think they won one Nabisco or possibly the, when it was the first year of the Levan Cup. I forget what if it was the crossover or not, but... And Sapporo as well, yeah, they had that chance to get in the ACR. There was a point there where they looked like they might kick on and get up into that next level, and they just never quite have enough. Um, so, yeah, it must be frustrating. But then at the same time, you know, Sapporo not that long ago were a, 
were a J2 club, a kind of yo-yo club, and, and now they're they're pretty much established as a as a mid-table. They haven't really looked like getting drawn into relegation at all in recent years. So it's it's one of those weird things where you know be careful what you wish for. I remember I'm going to show my age here, but I remember Charlton Athletic in the Premier League a long time ago under Alan Kerbishley. And the fans were starting to get restless that they weren't pushing on into Europe and they weren't really building each year. So he got sacked and then the the bottom fell out and I don't think they've been back in the Premier League since. So, yeah, it's always difficult. Um, and then on the flip side, yeah, you, you have to kind of admire someone that is so married to his, his style of football that he's he refuses to to um, to give an inch at all and, yeah, just sends the team out. You know exactly how they're going to play every week. Um, so if you've if you're if you're a decent coach and you've got a, a decent a decent team of players out there, you you should be able to pick Sapporo off pretty easily. All right, now this uh, this vintage of uh, F Marinos, uh, Sean. Uh, at this stage of proceedings, I guess they're just hoping for uh, for a slip up. At, well, that's actually going to take more than one, isn't it? They're going to need Kobe to drop uh, obviously points in in at least two games from from this point on, and they're going to have to be perfect themselves to stand a chance of, uh, of snatching a, a second straight title with uh, obviously Vissel in the the driving seat with four games left to play. So um, I guess uh, yeah, as we've said in in recent times, they've definitely been hit by injuries, uh, especially in defence and. Um, I guess that provides somewhat of an excuse for, for Kevin Muscat if they don't end up getting across the line. Um, is there anything else you can point to where they've not been quite at the same level um, throughout the team this season? Because, um, yeah, I guess after last season's title uh, title push, it looked like, um, well, you know, that was, uh, it was two in four years, wasn't it? So there was a, a definite possibility for them to uh, to go on a sort of a, almost a Kawasaki-esque run uh, of success. And it just hasn't quite gone for them. Obviously, second with four games to play, there's a lot of other teams that would love to be in that situation. But I think, yeah, they're obviously not um, they're not at the same level. And, yeah, there are reasons behind that. Uh, are there any in particular that you think um, will uh, will ultimately be will, will ultimately cost them a, a second straight title? Um, it's difficult, isn't it? It's always to pick, to point out one thing. I, I do think the problems in defence are an issue because of the way they play in that they are quite attack minded. It is about taking the initiative and being proactive. And, and to do that, you do need a solid, consistent base at the back. I mean, if you look at the best teams anywhere in the world to any point in history, However they play, whether it's a Mourinho-style team that is built upon defence or whether it's a Guardiola-Barcelona team, they still had solid, really, really good defences behind them that give you that foundation to build on. You know, you can only take the, the risks of playing attack-minded football where you've got six, seven, eight players pushing on if you know that the, the three or four at the back are capable of, of controlling things to a degree that is going to prevent you from from conceding more goals than you than you score. Um, so I think yeah, the the issues they've had at centre back and and full back as well to a to a slightly lesser degree have obviously had an impact. Not just in the sense that you know, like like Johnny mentioned before, having Sanito and Kida at the back is not uh, something that 
Kevin Muscat would have been anticipating he'd be trying to do at any point throughout the season, let alone um, when there's five games to go and you've you've got four points to make up. Um, and it's it's not to say those players are not you know not any good, but it just means then that the the whole shape of the team, the structure of the team, is not as solid as it would be if you've got Sinoda and Eduardo or Hatanaka in there. Um, it, it has those kind of ripples then spread out to the rest of the team. I think that's probably the key. Um, and there's also an element too of just not really being able to refresh none of the players that they've brought in to replace those going out. If you look at the year they won it with when Postacoglu was there, Marcos Junior was was fantastic. He obviously lost his place to to Nishimura throughout this year, so he's gone off to Hiroshima. Um, they lost Iwata last year, who's you know a solid, pretty unspectacular player, but. He was so vital to the way they played last year in giving them that that kind of holding role in the in the middle, either at the base of midfield alongside Kida or, or centre back. So when you lose players that are that key, if, if the ones that come in aren't quite at the same level, obviously then it means that you're not overall you're not as strong as you were before. And with with other teams improving, they, these are the margins that decide that decide titles. They've and you know opponents too, Elbear. Anderson Lopez, Jan um, Mateus has, has had shown flashes this year, but I don't think he's been really consistent enough. Obviously, he's had injuries and whatever else too. But once opponents know who your key threats are and how to shut you down, that's when you need other other options, other players to come in and suddenly be the be the threat that the opposition hadn't maybe seen. I mean, it's a it's a fairly cliched quote, but I remember Alex Ferguson always saying that, like you know. You need to strengthen after after a after a success. That's when you need to strengthen. You need to keep the team evolving, keep adding something new, so that you know you don't become predictable. You don't opponents don't know how to stop you. And I think maybe there's an element of that, um, which again linked to what I said about Kashima before, is not always something that they can you can cope with in the J League because if you're doing well, they lost their goalkeeper ahead of the season. They lost the the player of the year from last year. Um, even you know the likes of Joel Chima Fujita whatever have, have gone to Europe now. He was only a squad player, but you know he's, he's a very good squad player. He's someone that can come in. As you mentioned, they've got several more games than Colby now in the running. And and if you if you lose a player of that quality that can come in, it means then that you are going sort of further down the the squad list to players that who are still very very good players because they're in in J1 squads. But there's you know there's a different level I think to be winning the league. Um, so yeah, I just think those those factors all combined. But I, I do certainly think that the the problems they've had in defence have really sort of um, been a been a key factor. Yep. Okay. Then so we'll move on to the next game, and this is a link between the title race and the relegation dogfight. As in one of the two games played last Friday night, third placed Urawa hosted third hosted third from bottom. Kashiwa Raisol and uh, yes the uh, the Reds uh, marched on and they actually went to within a point of F Marino's in the live table on Friday night with a 2-0 victory uh, they went bang bang early in the second half Johnny with uh, Yoshio Koizumi uh, striking home a, a loose ball after uh, Kaito Yasui's 
shot was saved by Kenta Matsumoto. Uh, that was in the 53rd minute, and then four minutes later, Koizumi turned provider when he uh, slipped in Takia Ogiwara, and his uh, first-time shot across Matsumoto gave the keeper no chance. A uh, shout-out to Tomoaki Okubo, who is involved in uh, both moves for the Reds' goals, uh, firstly releasing Yasui down the right and then uh, surging through the middle before passing to Koizumi for the uh, setup for the second goal. So another clean sheet for the league's best defence. Uh, they maintained their push. Well, the, the top three looks extremely likely for them. And, uh, yeah, still were with an, an outside chance of the title, obviously, with four games to go. But uh, on the flip side, after a uh, look look to be somewhat of a bright start for uh, for Raysol. I think uh, sphincters might be beginning to tighten at uh, Hitachi Dai with, uh, as we're going to come on to next, huge victories for Yokama FC and Shonan making things, uh, yes, uh, very delicate down there for for Raysol with four games left. Yeah, th- this was definitely a bit of a banana skin for, for Reds because they, they've drawn the last two league games at, at home against uh, Kyoto and, and Yokohama FC. So, Kashiwa should have been fancying their chances, but yeah, one of one of Sam's other other favourites, uh, Yugo Tadsta, had to come back in because obviously Inukai's on on loan from Red, so he couldn't play. And then Matthias Savio was injured. I'm not quite sure why. And Hosoya was on the bench. Could he just come back from from America with with Japan under 22? So they were left with um, you know, uh, Kota Yamada and, and Koyamatsu up front, and there you know, there was no real central uh, forward, and it's really kind of a powder puff. Attack. I mean, they've struggled to score goals with with Savio and Hosoya in the team as it is. But you know, I only caught a bit of this game live, and I saw most of it on on highlights. And it it seemed like the first half an hour it was it was reasonable stuff for for Racer. They got a couple of shots off, but then after that, Reds really stepped it up. And then, uh, as you said, at the start of the second half, they went bang bang, killed the game off. Okubo not not credited as you say with any any goals or assists, but he was he was key in both those goals. And uh, yeah, Ogiwara's finish was an absolute. An absolute rocket, which which adds to the chorus of of people like myself suggesting that he might be, you know, if he keeps up this kind of form, maybe going into next year, he might be a potential candidate for for national team honours. As there seems to be a bit of a, a gap or a bit of competition there at the, the fullback positions, but you know, it's quite interesting to note Reds. They've got, like as I mentioned, they've got a lot of games coming up, and after after they went two 0 up, they didn't they didn't take another shot in the game and in race had a bit of a go, but I think it was all all too little, too late. And you know, Urawa was quite quite interesting. I think they lost second to injury early, and then then late on they actually gave a debut to a, a new Thai player, like Ekanit Panya. He, he came on. I think he's played in the ACL, but he came on for the first time in, in J1. So yeah, I think overall for for Reds, it's it's job done. I, I still think yeah, first is even though they've got Kobe to play at home, I think that's going to be out of their reach. Second is even quite, quite difficult, but they've got a bit of a gap behind them now to fourth. So they'll definitely finish in the top three. Whether they go any higher, I'm not I'm not convinced. But yeah, Racer, we'll, we'll talk about the other teams in, in a minute, but I think they must really be regretting. I think it was the, it was in the summer when I was, I was doing the sort of mini-pods. They, they conceded a 96-minute goal at home to Cerezo in a game they had chance after chance to, to win and they ended up drawing that. And I think there was a week where they lost, but both Yokohama FC and Shonan lost. And it was a home to Fukuoka and they were leading and then I think they gave away a silly goal and kind of went down to a 3-1 defeat and it's, it's games like that you start to think now you know it's, it's, it's definitely squeaky bum time down the down the Hitachi Dai so 
yeah, they should have taken the points then and be be safe. They'd be coasting the teams a few places above them. But you know, there's still four games to go. I, I still think Cashua will have enough to, despite a kind of toughish-looking fixture list. We, we always we've been bigging up the the Shonan Yokohama FC game for a few weeks now, and I think that game is very much in the favour of everyone else down there because it means both those teams can't take maximum points. So I think that. That helps Kashiwa, and I think that they can, with if Savio comes back and they've got Hosoya and Inukai, I think they can just about take take enough points to to, to stay up. Um, but which which wouldn't really be the, you know, at the start of the season it would be a bit of a failure. But yeah, it is what it is, and I think Kashiwa Kashiwa fans will be be happy to take any form of survival at the moment. Yeah, most definitely. And uh, in fact, this coming weekend, uh, after Kashiwa went first on Friday night, they actually play last of the uh, the, the relegation dogfighters in uh, match day 31. They play the only game uh, on Sunday this coming weekend at home against Kawasaki. So, um, yes, the boot will definitely be on the other foot for Raysol. They'll uh, have seen how Shonan and Yokohama FC get on in their games on uh, Saturday. And uh, there's a possibility that they might even be um, joint bottom with uh, Yokohama FC by the time they uh, they kick off at home against Kawasaki. Uh, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll touch on the third, match day 31 fixture list uh, at the end of the episode. Uh, Sean, yeah, as, uh, as Johnny said, it does look unlikely for the title for for Reds at the moment. But um, yeah, they're definitely the, the the short price favourites to finish third, and I guess they could. Um, they could still work their way up to second, although it would take um, basically, yeah, I think them being perfect for the remainder of their their league fixtures. And uh, on a similar vein to, to F Marinos, when when they look back at the end of the year, I think yeah, too many um, too many draws for Reds and um, struggling to turn um, you know clear cut chances and dominance in games into you know actual goals in the goals four column and and three points taken. There's just been too many uh, missed opportunities, I think, for um, for arguably the most talented squad in the league in uh, Maciej Scorge's first season uh, in charge. But, um, yeah, it does look like they're not quite going to have enough to get over the line, doesn't it? That's quite a big claim. Arguably the most talented squad, you reckon? Uh, there's definitely holes in it, but I think, yeah, uh, their, their best players, I think, are um, in a number of positions are as good as... Um, and as evenly spread across the pitch as, uh, as other teams. I mean, uh, they've got one of the best goalkeepers, I think, um, the best centre-back pairing and arguably the best um, central midfield pairing. Obviously, they're lacking up front, but I think in a number of positions, they're as good as uh, as, as anybody else in the division. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I think, yeah, if, you, if you're looking at best 11s, if you lined up all the best 11s across, uh, across J1, yeah, they're definitely up there. Um, there's still players in the team that I just don't quite understand. Uh, Sekine is one. Uh, Koizumi finally got a, a golden assist, which I think, I'm not 100%, but I think they were his first goal and first assist of the season, which, um, considering the position he plays for the for the team he plays for, is it's a shocking, uh, shocking stat. Um, but yeah, I think they're best 11, certainly. But yeah, as you said, there's holes in there too. Yeah, I think third is the best they're going to get. I just think there's too much of a gap. Uh, Marinos seem to be kind of in the zone now. I think Marinos kind of know that the title's gone, but they're not. They're they're focused enough to to hold up their end of the bargain, do as much as they can, and you know if they if they miss out in the end, if Kobe are perfect now or nearly perfect, if they win say three and draw one and, and win the league, I think you know Marinos will say, well, we gave it our best shot. 
I, I can't really see. I don't think Monos are going to lose their motivation and, and just give up the ghost. So I don't know if Reds can can make up that gap. Um, and yeah, as you said, defensively now they're they're very well organised, and it's you know it's it's not easy, obviously, finding that balance between having a solid defence and a really effective attack. Um, every every manager wants to have it. Every every set of fans want their team to do it. Um, but you know you either become a uh, a solid team that don't concede much like Reds but then you, you give up a little bit going forwards or you, you you play kind of a gung-ho style of football and then you leave yourself open at the back to to the risk of conceding so it's difficult to find that balance I think for his first season Scorza obviously has, has done incredibly well um, the, the foundation now is obviously set whether they can whether he can build on it on, uh, next year and add a little bit more quality a little bit more finesse in the final third two to push Reds on to become a real challenger will be will be interesting to see. Um, but yeah, I think I think any higher than than third for them now is um, it's going to need a, something quite quite catastrophic to happen for the the two teams ahead of them. Yeah, and just briefly on, on Raysol, uh three three rounds ago, Sean, uh, it looked like uh, Raysol were going to do a 2022 Vissel Kobe where they'd been down. Uh, right down in the mire for pretty much the entire season, but on the back of uh, of uh, consecutive wins, it looked like they were going to um, maybe yeah ease their way up to I don't know 13th or 14th with the the fixtures they had remaining. We we said on the pod they probably need two more victories to feel safe at that point. Well, three rounds later they've got one victory, but yeah the other two have been defeats. And as we're going to come on to next year, Yokohama FC and Shonan, um, yeah, maintained the pressure with, with huge victories of their own. So um, it's, uh, it's one of those where we, yeah, as I said, we, we've expected them to dig themselves out all season, but you look at them with four rounds to play and they've won the same amount of games as Shonan and Yokohama FC below them. They've scored, uh, only two more goals than Yokohama FC, the, uh, the the league's weakest attack. So um, yeah, uh, I guess uh, we uh, we were a little bit uh, uh, hasty to to say um, that Raysol were were able to breathe easy because as we've seen after the weekend, they're they're most certainly not. Um, well, I don't, I don't know if you, you can say you were hasty. I think what at that point. Everybody just nobody expected that Shonan and, and Yokohama FC would suddenly become unbeatable, unbeatable teams and start winning or, or picking up points away at, at teams like Reds. Um, but yeah, when you when you say those stats, I'm looking at the table now, and yeah, it's remarkable to see that Race have only won six all year, and yeah, 28 goals in 29 games. When you look at the the attacking options they've got, is is a pathetic return. Um, I think yeah, Matteo Savio will be back this weekend. He was suspended, obviously, last for the last game. Mal Hossio, I think he only got back the day before their match away at Red. So I think because the game was on a Friday night, you know, maybe he wasn't quite ready to to start. Um, but yeah, as, as Johnny said, even with those two in the team, they they clearly haven't haven't been scoring enough. Um, I certainly thought as well once they beat Yokohama FC. I was at that game four weeks ago maybe now five I forget when it was but it seemed like then yeah Racer were had kind of done enough to pull themselves away and um we, we touched upon it in the green room but I've had a bit of a jinx this season where whatever I write about um seems to 
to scupper the the chances of those teams. And on the flip side, I wrote something not that long ago saying that that neither Yokohama FC or Shonan were really putting up much of a fight, and it was kind of a race to the bottom. And and since then, they've both really turned things around. So um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what what magic or what curse I've got in my uh, in my laptop, but. Yeah, I certainly didn't think. I mean, Yokohama FC were pretty miserable against Reiso at Mitsuzawa that game. Shonan have been, yeah, very, very unreliable this season. So I think Reiso should be okay, just because as you as you touched upon there, they've you know Shonan have got to play Yokohama FC and and Yokohama seem to do well against the the better teams. I think they've beaten Vissel, they've beaten Marinos, they've beaten Kawasaki, they. I don't know if you can call Tokyo. I don't know if you can put them in that bracket, but they beat Tokyo this, this past <laughs> weekend. Um, and then when they play the other, you know, the teams that you might you might think they'd get something against, they just don't seem to turn up. Um, so, I mean, as a as a sort of, sort of semi neutral, I quite want them to. I want Shonan and Yokohama. I want that to be a, a shootout. I want Reisol to kind of pull away. And I just like that that penultimate weekend. I'd like that to be a kind of like almost a playoff, like you know, winner winner stays up kind of thing. Um, but yeah, if if Reso, like you said, they've got a pretty tricky run in now. Frontale, Antlers, Tosu, and, and Nagoya is you know it's, it's the J League. So you look at those fixtures and they could win any of them. But if they were to lose all four, it wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a huge shock. So then, if if the teams beneath them can can pick up what three, four points over the end of the season, it could happen. So yeah, they'll be um yeah they'll be getting a little bit nervous, I think, um over in Chiba and, and hoping that they can uh hoping that they can sneak something, even if it's just a point um against Kawasaki this weekend, and and the other two don't win or pick up any points again, just to give them that little bit of breathing room. Because yeah, it's not um. It's definitely not decided yet. Indeed not. So it's uh, you and your magic laptop we have to thank for uh, sparking the uh, relegation dogfight back to life. So uh, thank you very much, Sean. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> no yeah, given us no given us some more uh, some good content on the pod. As uh, yes, Yokohama FC and Sean both claimed huge one nil victories on Saturday afternoon. Yokohama FC kicked off first. They hosted FC Tokyo at Mitsuzawa, and just past the half hour, the Sky Blues took the lead when Shion Inoue's shot from inside the D deflected off the Tokyo defender Enrique Trevisan and flashed into the net past a completely wrong-footed Taishi Brandon Nozawa. Uh, Ten minutes after the break, uh, homekeeper Kengo Nagai was out smartly to deny a Dialton, but uh, Nagai did not have to make a meaningful save the rest of the way. Yokohama FC claiming a deserved three points and uh, with, well, they obviously had a lot more to play for on the Saturday afternoon than, than Tokyo. And uh, it's a massive understatement to say that showed uh, on the pitch. So I would say that Yokohama FC went above Shonan in the live table, but actually, Johnny, by the time that game finished, uh, uh, Shonan were ahead at halftime in their game as well, away at Kyoto, after uh, Takuya Okamoto was fouled by Yuto Misao, uh, Yuki Ohashi fired the spot kick straight down the middle for his 10th league goal of the season, six minutes before the break. So uh, Shonan went in ahead 
uh, at uh, the, the Sanger Stadium uh, at almost the same time as the Yokohama FC's game was finishing at home against Tokyo. So uh, Shonan kept their head above water and, um, well, they were, they were hanging on a little bit at the end. Um, Kyoto had a number of corners in second half stoppage time and indeed in the 95th minute, a Kyoto defender Shinosuke Fukuda's point-blank header was deflected out for a corner. It might have been on target and it might have been sneaking in. We don't know. But uh, Shonan escaped with the 1-0 victory and they're able to exhale and celebrate at full time. So these are two huge victories. And as we've said, they've increased the pressure on Raysol. Um, I guess you could see, uh, as I said, in the, the uh, Yokohama FC Tokyo game, um, the... Uh, yeah, the, the clear fact that uh, Yokohama FC had a lot more on the line, whereas in the other game, I think Kyoto gave Shonan a a, a real scrap. But uh, yeah, Shonan emerged with uh, with huge credit. So uh, yeah, massive three points for both of these teams on on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, I think I think we, we get enough we get enough wrong in this podcast, and we, we curse enough teams. I think we should give ourselves a pat on the back because we did we did correctly identify that these two games were winnable for for Yokohama FC and, and Shonan last week. Um, I think that obviously Yokohama FC they get a bit of luck with the, the deflection for the for the goal, but I, I really like the build up. There's two really incisive passes from Caprini and Marcelo Hian leading up to to Inoue's goal. I think that that really it seemed to be the the mark of quality in the, the first half, and then as you say, Shirai's pass in in the second. I, I only caught the highlights of that, but it's usually a bit of a telltale sign when they in a, a shortened highlights package they they include like crosses being caught by the goalkeeper kind of suggest there wasn't a whole lot of, of goal mouth action and you know, I think as we mentioned last week it must be really frustrating for, for FC Tokyo supporters it it seems like if they get the first goal they're great if, if they don't get the first goal then they, they're very susceptible to going down to defeats like this one interesting thing I noticed because one of one of Yokama FC's like key players this season has been uh, Yuri Lara and he's now up to seven yellow cards so if he gets a now, if he gets a, another yellow card, that's out for two games, potentially at the Shonan game. The, the way he plays, I, I would back on him. I would, I would bet bet on him getting another yellow card at some point. Whether he can put it off until the Shonan game or the, the last game of the season re, remains to be seen. Um, yeah, Shonan Kyoto, again, I think we said last week, Kyoto were kind of the, the, the weakest team that were, that were safe, but... You know, as, as you mentioned, they, they gave it they gave it a fair go. I think that up to the penalty, it seemed to be f- fairly even. Um, and then the, the penalty, I mean, it is it is a penalty. Mizal knows what he's doing and he tries to get his foot out of the way, but he just can't do it. And there's not a lot of contact. But Okamoto go, goes down. The ref sees that, and it, it is a penalty. And yeah, you know, Ohashi's very very cool under under pressure, sending Gu the wrong way and just sliding it down the middle. And I think Ohashi, whatever happens to Shonan, if if he wants to be in J1 next season, he he will be a J1 player. Like yeah, there'll be interest from from J1 clubs, even if Shonan do end up going going down to to J2. But you know, because his goals have really helped. That's that's ten points in the last five games for for Shonan, and they have a very very tough game next week, as we say against against Vissel. But you know, it's, it's at home that they've got they've got they've given themselves a, like a lot of confidence in this game. It, it might actually have been. That playing this game away from home was a bit easier because you're in the opponent's stadium, so that Kyoto fans would naturally be a bit more relaxed before kickoff, and a lot of the tension or pressure because you've got ahead then is transmitted from their fans to their players. Whereas at home, if you haven't broken them down after 60, 70 minutes, all the tensions on you. So it, it might have very well worked in in their favour, but yeah, I think 
Well, Shonan, again, I think we said in previous episodes that they've got the slightly harder run of the of the two teams um, themselves in, in Yokohama FC. But you know, if they could somehow like, you know, keep this two, two points per game run run going, and if they could go into that round 33 game, that they really want to have the chance. If we win this, or if we even better, if they could draw against Yokohama FC, and it puts them down. I think they'd bite, their, bite your hand off for, for that now. But, you know, as, as a podcast, absolutely brilliant. It keeps the title race uh, the, the title race going, but the, the relegation dogfight is still going as well. We've got another team sucked back in. And, yeah, I, I really couldn't predict who's going to go down from here. It's, it's all up in the air. Yeah, I mean, you, you hate to even uh, c- contemplate it, don't you? Because uh, yeah, yeah, we we believe in the jinx here at at J Talk Towers, and so yeah, we we don't want to uh, uh, we don't want to feel like we're uh, yeah putting undue pressure on uh, one of the teams by suggesting that yeah they, um, they might be safe. Actually, I think that's that's the whole point, isn't it? If you think you're safe, then you're almost certainly not in the J League. So um, yeah, we'll we'll wait and see. The, the fixtures are really interesting for, um, well, all of the bottom three. But, yeah, the bottom two especially as they sit with four rounds to go. And, obviously, yes, the, the Yokohama FC hosting Shonan game, it does loom especially large in match day 33. But, yeah, Shonan otherwise have uh, their other three games all at home at the Lemon Gas. And Yokohama FC's other three games are all away uh, on the road. And Sean has mentioned they do tend to play up to the level of their opponents. So um, we'll we'll wait and see. Um, yeah, I mean, the last game of the season, uh, Yokohama FC have to travel to Kashima while uh, Sean and host FC Tokyo. So the way things sit at the moment, obviously, you, you know, um, which uh, which of those fixtures you'd rather play, but uh, we'll uh, we'll wait and see. As uh, as I seem to say every week, um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it does look like it's going to go right down to the wire. Okay, so that's all our business at uh, yeah both ends of the table. The uh, the remaining four games left to cover. Uh, well, they were not quite as uh, consequential uh, in match day 30. We'll begin at the Panasonic Stadium, Johnny, where Agumbo Osaka hosted Nagoya. And, uh, well, just like for my uh, FC Tokyo side, it was uh, yeah, another disappointing Saturday afternoon at the office for Gumba. They succumbed to a Nagoya side who uh, won the game through Haruya Fuji's Header in the 26th minute. Uh, Gumba had chances to get back into the game, but uh, were a little bit profligate and also were, um, yeah, unable to find a way past uh, Mitch Langerak when they did have shots on target. So, yeah, um, it's uh, it's not feeling uh, all that great on a Monday night for the uh, the J Talk co-host this week, is it? Yeah, I, th- I think this game had a bit of a feeling of a end of season nil nil, and it just happened to have Fuji's goal ta- tagged onto it. That- I mean, for, for Nagoya, if you're looking at positive, they, they won the game. I think there were there were six without a, a win before that, so it, it's always nice to win. And I think you know, defensively very solid that that back three, and they had uh, Yonimoto was back in, in midfield with Inagaki, and obviously Langarak there. It was, it was very difficult. They were quite happy for like Alano and Yamamoto to have the ball, but in a, a non-dangerous area. And Gamba, I think Usami was starting ahead of Jubali at centre forward. For a lot of the game, they really struggled to kind of get get in behind in the, the central area. Gamba, the only real positive was you know young Dai Tsukamoto came on for the last ten minutes. He's been out injured for almost the, the best part of two years. He had a really serious knee injury in there, and he actually almost almost scored at the end, almost got the, the equaliser. So that was the only real positive. But Gamba, they did try this kind of hybrid like three four two one slash 
um, like the usual four-three-three, where like Kurokawa was a left wing back when they were defending, but then Fukuoka slipped, slipped over to left back, and Kurokawa became the left winger. And yeah, it, it made them a bit more solid. They had three centre backs, but whether that's down to actual more solidity or down to the fact Nagoya didn't do a ton of uh, attacking kind of remains to be seen. Yeah, Nagoya have, have won this, but. Yeah, it's a bit like they won both the games against Gamba 1-0 when, when Gamba have been very out of form. And I mean, you mentioned Yokohama FC playing up to opponents. I mean, there's a chance Nagoya play down because they've never really looked much better than Gamba in the, the three hours of football I've seen. And I think the only other thing I really wanted to, to mention, that there was a kind of a non-VAR incident. I think um, it was the Kubo who was starting in place of the suspended um, Morishita. He seemed to tangle legs with Kurokawa, who, who was in the box. And then Kurakawa kind of complained, but no one else complained. And then the ball went out for a throw-in a bit later, and the ref allowed Nagoya to take a throw-in. And then Kurakawa told a couple of his mates, and when the play stopped again, they were saying, "Can we get check VAR?" But it was it was too late. And I mean, yeah, from what I saw in the replay, with a bit of bias, I, I think if VAR had looked at it, it would have been a penalty. That this is it, nil-nil. Um, I'm happy for someone to say it wouldn't have been a penalty, but I really think it should have been VAR checked and. You know, I think we'll go on to the Kawasaki game about you know non-complaining or you know, if you don't complain enough to the referee, it doesn't seem to, to get you any favour. We, we've criticised like Kashima in the past. I think there's a recent sending off or having a go at the ref, but you know, sometimes the, the decision making from the officials makes you think, well, is that the way to get a decision by by like aggressively shouting at the referee? It, it really shouldn't be. But you know, this might just be kind of sour grapes from from myself, but. You know, Gamba have got the, the derby next week. Um, not not in the best of form, although neither are, neither are Serizo. Grampus, they, you know, they're up to, to fourth. I'd be I'd be quite confident, you know, of, of them making a, a a top six run. So, I mean, I guess this this is quite a nice segue to to the question from from Mike Innes about about Nagoya. We wanted to put to to Sean because you know, obviously they started the season very very well and got going great guns in the, in the league and in both cups, but. They've been knocked out of both cup competitions. They, they've slipped away quite badly in the league. As, as I mentioned, they were, they were six without a win before this this fairly unconvincing victory against a, an out-of-form side. So I'm, I'm not going to say that they're back ju- just yet. But, you know, Sean, do, do you think, like, how much of Nagoya falling away has been down to, to Matthias leaving in the summer and the, the subsequent changes? Or how much do you think it's down to maybe the, the manager or, or maybe some, some other factors at the club? What do you think? Um, I, I think Ben will probably agree, but I think most of it is down to the manager. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like Kenta Hasegawa. He's, he's a very, very nice guy. Um, obviously, he's a he's a good football manager. Well, I say Ben will know, but obviously, you, Johnny, you'll you'll know as well. Yes. yes. Down in Gamba, but you know, he won the treble down in Gamba. He took Tokyo to the brink of almost winning the title. I mean, it's it's always kind of forgotten, but but the year that Ange Postecoglou's Marinos won it, it was you know, as as good as Marinos were, I think they went unbeaten in their last ten or, or won their last ten or something stupid. But but if Tokyo had managed to put up a another another win or two, they'd have they'd have been champions. So you know, he's obviously not a bad coach, but he, he definitely errs more on the side of caution. Um, which, um, as I've mentioned, either on this pod or on the J two pod, or, or probably on both, to be honest, at some point, is I, I've always been of the mind that. You're far better off, surely, just just going for it in football, especially in the J League, because there are enough teams that are 
are beatable out there and then Kenta Hasegawa seems to be of the opposite school of like if you're difficult to beat you'll, you'll ultimately be you know be better off at the end of the season and I think that win against Gamba was their first win in seven I think mm-hmm. which um, is just yeah when you look at you know, obviously now they're they're kind of too far adrift of of making any real challenge for anything but you look at that and you just think if they could have won a couple of them they'd really be in the mix now i really thought with with seven or eight games to go that they were the kind of dark horse i felt like with the the fixtures that were left they really had a chance to to challenge for the title and um, yeah again as as ben said before about urawa if you look at if you look at nagoya's best 11 you you'd put them up against pretty much every team in the division and go yeah they they're as good um to to touch upon mike's question i think yeah obviously losing a player as good as mateus is is huge. They don't have someone that good um, to come in. They signed Morishima from San Frecce. He's, he's he's a good player in J1. He's he's shown flashes. He's clearly very talented, but he doesn't have the output or hasn't had the output um, thus far in his career that Mateus had in terms of in terms of goals, in terms of assists, and in terms of just you know the the overall impact. And as I kind of touched upon with Marinos before, with them losing their centre backs, it's also the ripples that that come out of losing players like that. If you're if you're in a team and you've got Mateus there, you know he's capable of of making something happen out of nothing when maybe it would have been a nil nil or a one nil defeat. He's possi- he's he has the with him and the team there's the possibility of of you snatching a win or, or getting a point from the game. And once you lose him, I mean there isn't really anyone else. Izumi's a decent player, now Kimaed is a decent player. Kensuke Nagai is a player. I mean, you know, there's there's no one else of, of that level. Um, and yeah, Kasper Junker obviously is, is one of the best centre forwards in in the league, but he looks a little bit like he's sort of lacking that that spark that Mateus brought to the attack as well. So yeah, I, I think that's definitely been a factor. I think if they'd kept Mateus, they probably would be three, four points better off. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's, it's so hard to, to pin down one factor. But I think overall there is that element of, of Kenta Hasegawa just being terrified to take off the handbrake and say to his players, "Look, you've you've got the you've got the making of this opponent. Go out there and just just play, do what you need to do." And I think if he'd done that over the course of the season, maybe they'd be better off. Um, but he, on the flip side, he does have a lot more coaching badges and a lot more experience than me so i'd be yeah i'd sort of i'd be loath to to say that if he'd just done that they'd have won the league because um yeah it's obviously not not that straightforward i think i would just add about because it was a very interesting transfer about morishima going from from hiroshima to, to nagoya and i think you know ostensibly written in a piece of paper like hiroshima and nagoya play the same formation so morishima can just kind of go in for on a, on a magnet board morishima can go in for matthias but now, as you say, I think Matthias is a bit more off the cuff with some of his like like crazy goals or his, his combination play with Juncker. Whereas I, I get the feeling like I mean I, I've not been behind the scenes at San Frecci or, or Grampus, but I think if you're able to ask Morishima at San Frecci like what do you do, I think he would give a much more detailed answer like about you know the centre forward takes the defenders out of the way and then I move into this space or try to find this player or we all press as a group the three forwards or when the, the wing back goes wide I cut back and. I don't think any of that really exists to, to any extent at, at Grampus. I think they work a lot on the defence and the two 
anchor midfielders in front of that and moving side to side. And then the attacking philosophy is just, we have some quick players, let's just bomb the ball over the top, which I, I don't think is really Morishima's game. So I think you know, he's going to have to lear, learn with Kenta Hasegawa style and also Grandpa's going to have to learn about his style and his qualities. But I think making that change for, from a very different attacking side in the middle of the season, I, I think that's not really helped. So, yeah, I think that doubly, uh, to, to just kind of like back up Sean's point, losing Matthias didn't help. And it, it being very difficult to find a, a suitable replacement just kind of compounded a, a, an already quite, quite a big problem. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for your question, Mike. And thanks, uh, Sean and uh, Johnny there for your thoughts uh, on Mike's question. Yeah, I mean, I think Mateus, um, well, one of the most irreplaceable players, I think, um, in in J1. And yeah, unfortunately for Nagoya, uh, they lost him in mid-season. And yeah, very, very difficult shoes to fill for, for Murishima. Um, he's done his best since he's come in. But uh, yeah, I think we can see. Uh, and as the guys have said, not the same kind of player, so very difficult to expect uh, the same kind of output from from Morishima as um, yeah one of the uh, the most electrifying attacking players we've seen in the in the J League in the last uh, ten or so seasons, I think, uh, on his day in Mateus. All right then, so um, we've uh, we mentioned that Reds and uh, Raisol was at one of the games last Friday night. The other was a played at Todoroki where Kawasaki hosted Fukuoka. Um, if you're keeping track at home, listeners, this was a, a rematch of the Emperor's Cup semi-final played on the same ground 12 days previously. And wouldn't you know it, the game ended in the same scoreline. Kawasaki 4, Fukuoka 2. But for a large part of this game, it did look as though uh, visiting Avispa were going to go uh, fourth in the table, and indeed they did in the live table uh, throughout this game. Um, after first, uh, Kawasaki had taken a, a 20th-minute lead through Yusuke Sagawa. Um, Avispa were able to equalise four minutes later through Douglas Grolly, and then with 25 minutes remaining, uh, Fukuoka did indeed take the lead and went fourth in the live table when uh, Yota Maijima crossed from the right. Yuya Yamagishi's header was uh, saved by Jun Sung Ryong, but uh, Yamagishi himself followed up and his shot squirmed under the keeper and crept over the line. In the Patreon-only line group, Daniel, our Avispa correspondent, of course, was uh, yet yeah, celebrating the fact that uh, Avispa were fourth in the live table. And uh, I think Daniel now knows what it's like to be me because whenever you feel comfortable and confident about your team doing something or going somewhere, well, then it comes back and uh, slaps you straight, straight in the face because, um, yes, uh, 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 Toru Oniki's substitutions uh, bore some fruit uh, and then some for Kawasaki late on. As uh, first, uh, Yu Kobayashi scored a remarkable equaliser in the 84th minute when he ran onto to uh, Kazuya Yamamura's long ball over the top, controlled and then uh, finished past Masaki Murakami, uh, a tremendous goal. And then um, three other uh, Frontale subs combined in stoppage time to put the uh, the icing on the cake. First, they went ahead when uh, Bafatimbi Gomis assisted Diatono's brilliant leaping volley in the 92nd minute, and then uh, Gomis assisted Taisei Miyashiro's finish on the slide at the back post in the 96th to break a Vispa Hearts. So, yes, they went from fourth in the live table back down to eighth 
at full time. Of course, they've still got a cup final to look forward to, and Daniel is, is relishing that, I'm sure. But um, yes, unfortunately for him, he spoke a little bit too soon on Friday night. So uh, Kawasaki uh, running out for two victors. And I'll tell you what, Sean, we, we had a question last week from Sam. You might have heard of uh, Sam. I'm not sure if you remember him or not, but there uh, used to be a, a regular feature <laughs> around these parts. But he, he Where wondered. Are they now? <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. And he, he wondered whether the, 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 the golden era was over for Kawasaki. And um, Johnny and I were, were, were chatting about, I guess, um, you know, the, the impossible task of replacing the, the quality of players that they've lost over the last, you know, three or four years. And, I mean, some of the players that we mentioned that they've brought in uh, Sagawa, Tono and uh, Miyashiro, I think were three literal examples and they've all gone and scored in this particular game. I still am of a mind that I don't think they're, well, I I mean, they're clearly not at the same level and I don't think they're going to be able to keep Frontale at the sharp end of of the table. But I guess uh, uh, for about the last 15 minutes on Friday night, we did get a glimpse of, of what Frontale are capable of uh, when everything clicks for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're not they're not at the same level as as Altanaka, Kaurumitoma, um, Hidemasa Morita. Yeah, they're, they're, it's not the same level. I mean, these they're obviously good players. They're solid J1 players. I think you guys touched upon in the in the pod last week. You know, mid table J1, upper mid table J1, but um, and it's it's similar to the point I made about Kashmir before. I mean teams go through cycles i'm a i'm a man united fan and i'm learning that all too well now um compared to when i was a kid and where they are now it happens you know it will it will happen to to um it's you know kind of happening almost to marinos now to an extent in that they're dropping away and not the favorites in the title race it happens to teams all over the world in sort of well i guess yeah it happens in the premier league too with when it money is a bigger factor but it happens all over the world once you lose groups of players certain coaches these you know you, you, it's so hard to maintain the same level um and yeah those players you mentioned are, are good players but they're not at the the same standard as, as the ones kawasaki have lost um i don't think Toro or nikki has suddenly become a, a bad coach overnight um and I don't think he was ever necessarily, you know, a, a groundbreaking coach who was destined for, for for magnificent things. I think he's obviously a very, very good coach, had a very good core of players and and they've now drifted away. And the other players like, you know, he said Yu Kobashi's still good, but he's not the same player he was five years ago. Um, same for Ienaga. Leandro Damian, Bafatimi Gomez is good, but I think he's 38. Um, it was kind of a bit of a strange sign, you know, I thought for... Kawasaki to make whether they made that with a with half an eye or or three quarters an eye in the ACL. I can I can only assume that was their their aim as that's kind of the the title that they haven't won so far and under Oniki. Um, but yeah, they're not. You know, it happens to teams. It's it's not a it's not um, a crisis. You drop down, you find ways. He's he's done it before. If they can bring through some other players from from the youth team, pick up some good university players, the other teams above them will will lose players too. They'll either you know to age, to injury, to transfers to Europe. It's it's such a transient league that you know I don't think there's any need for, for Kawasaki fans to be to be panicking too much. But yeah, they're not you know snatching a 
a win against Avispa Fukuoka at home with three goals in the last, well, the first one was the 84, so technically last six minutes, but including injury time, last, say, 10 minutes or so, is not the kind of thing Kawasaki were doing when they were when they were storming to the the title they are they are a different team but you know they're still a they're still a decent team so I don't think it's, it's the end of the world and a Vispa yeah it's it's not, it's not like them to to concede really at all let alone to concede three goals in 10 minutes um but you know they've they've overachieved for the last two three seasons they're really now embedded as I said before with Sapporo they're now pretty much accepted as a as a as a J1 regular under Hasebe, they've got a cup final to come, so I'm sure their fans won't be too disappointed. Um, and they'll yeah, they'll be looking forward to their big day out at, at National Stadium soon. Can I can I just add that there's a lot there's a lot of opinions about celebrating or, or not celebrating against former teams, but I think Diatono got it completely wrong, actively running towards his own support while actively telling everyone he's not celebrating. I think that's the worst yeah. example I've ever seen. You, you, you either go and celebrate stupid. properly or go back to the halfway <laughs> line, I think. It's stupid too. Like if you, if you, you don't, I don't know. <laughs> if, you're, if you're Dennis Law and you've just relegated Man United for Man City, maybe you're, you, you put on a bashful face and you, you, you try not to put, you're playing for your club now, so if you score a goal for them, you celebrate it, um, especially in Japan, because you know, the fans are not going to do anything. Maybe, yeah, maybe if you're in Brazil or somewhere and you, you fear for your life afterwards, but if you just scored a goal, celebrate it, for God's sake. No one really cares. It, it's so stupid, this whole kind of, this faux kind of like respect for for the old fans. It's, it's very silly. Um, yeah, you scored a goal, especially when you scored a goal that good. Mm. I would if if I'd ever scored a goal that good, I would have celebrated <laughs> it, whoever it was against. Absolutely excellent point, Sean. Yes, um, yeah, well, I think we can only dream about uh, scoring a, a brilliant leaping volley as a tunnel did, and indeed it ended up being. Uh, the match winner, as we said, in the 92nd minute. So, uh, yeah, Frontale, uh, 4-2 victors over Fukuoka, as we said, for the uh, the second time with the exact same scoreline uh, in the past two weeks. All right, then, so uh, two games left to go, and they were both drawn uh, at uh, uh, in uh, match day 30. Uh, we'll do the uh, Niigata Tosu game first. This ended at 1-1 with uh, both goals coming within a minute of each other in first half stoppage time. Firstly, uh, Koji Suzuki scored from the penalty spot to give uh, hosts Albertex the lead. That was in the fourth minute of stoppage time, but within 30 seconds of the restart, uh, Yuji Ono headed a uh, right-wing cross through the legs of Albertex keeper Ryosuke Kojima to make it 1-1. And, uh, yeah, this very, uh, as uh, Johnny mentioned earlier for the Gumba Nagoya game, it very much had the feeling of uh, an end-of-season affair, but still there was end-to-end action. So I think the punters at the Big Swan, although they did get a bit wet on the Saturday afternoon, I think they went home uh, relatively entertained. Uh, the other game was at the Edeon Stadium in Hiroshima, where uh, two teams uh, hanging on by their fingernails to a chance to finish uh, in uh, the ACL positions. San Frecce and their visitors, uh, Cerezo Osaka, played out a nil-nil draw. Again, there was goal math action at both ends in this game, but uh, neither keeper, Keisuke Osako for the hosts, or Kim Jin-hyun for visiting Cerezo were beaten on the afternoon. And uh, yes, it ended uh, goalless there. So I think we can probably just move on, gents, and we'll uh, we'll consign those two games 
to history and uh, we'll chat about what's to come in the next few days uh, in Japanese football and indeed on the continent as well. As uh, Sean, you've uh, told us in the green room that you're heading to Urawa versus Pohang on Tuesday night in the Asian Champions League. This is uh, the pick of the fixtures for the Japanese clubs in uh, match day three of the group stage. Uh, Reds host Paul Hang, having won one and drawn one of their first uh, two games, while Paul Hang have a perfect slate after two wins from two. Uh, also on Tuesday night, uh, Kawasaki are away in Thailand against uh, Patum. Patum have lost their first two games in their group, while Kawasaki, of course, are a perfect two wins from two. Then on Wednesday, Yokohama F. Marinos, with the same record as Reds after two match days, a win and a draw. They host a winless Kaya FC of the Philippines. And uh, Kofu's ACL adventure continues, this time over in China. They uh, they travel to uh, Zhejiang, who have lost uh, both of their uh, group games so far so a chance for Kofu to maybe consolidate their strong position in their group after they won one and uh, drew one of their uh, their first two games but uh, yes all roads uh, lead to Saitama Stadium Sean and it uh, should be a cracker when uh, Reds host uh, Paul Hang one of the strongest teams of course in the K-League on a a year-to-year basis Uh, this should be a a really interesting game and a great test for uh, Mache Scorger and his side yeah, I hope so. Um, I have to admit, I don't share your excitement about going to Saitama on a cold, well, no, not cold, a chilly, it's not quite cold yet over here, but yeah, it'll be a chilly Tuesday night. Um, ACL group stage games there tend to be quite um, muted affairs. Saitama Stadium is a fantastic venue when it's full, but when it's less than half full on a, for, yeah, kind of a group stage game with the, I don't know what kind of team uh scored so we'll put out for this but yeah as you said it's i think the acl this year is in a way it's more interesting because of the fact that only the group winners go through and then i think it's sort of the best second place finishers so there is that slight element of jeopardy where you know with marinos you know losing their first game at home as well suddenly meant they really had to to pick up things um but yeah should be good i, I sort of gave myself because all the all four of the the J League participants this year are sort of in and around Tokyo. I I said I want to go and see all of them at home at least once. Um, I saw Kofu's win against Buri Ram. So, yeah, Reds are up this time. Um, and, yeah, it'll be interesting to see them. Obviously, they've got still just about in the race, but not probably not. But for, for the league, they've got the cup final coming up as well. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to – I haven't seen them much – much so far this season so it'd be interesting to see how they're getting on um and yeah the acl is is always a uh and it takes a while to get going over here whether it's i mean it's picked up recently i guess in part because it's now shown on dazone when it used to be buried away on some obscure cable channel that no one had no one really was watching it um the group stages certainly it always kind of felt a bit sort of an unloved competition um, and this year, and then there was the COVID years where it was in centralised locations. And this year it started at a different time. So the, the J-League's reaching its finale, but the ACL's just starting. And it's, yeah, it's a it's a difficult competition to kind of, to get fully behind. Um, but Reds obviously take it very seriously. It's, it's huge for them. Um, 
they've won it three times, obviously including this year, which is actually last year's competition. And then um, they've got the Club World Cup coming up soonish because of that. Um, and obviously it bolsters their their reputation overseas. You know, I think around Asia they're seen as kind of one of, if not the biggest clubs, sort of strongest, best best teams in in the J League. But they've actually only won the J League once, so it's it helps them in that respect as well. And it's obviously formed a huge part of their identity, especially the first the first time they won it, and and to an extent the second time in in 2017 too. Um, so yeah, they will. They'll be wanting to maintain their their, their strong start and uh, making sure they get another three points. So fingers crossed on the pitch. Yeah, it's it's worth me trekking out to to side tomorrow on a Tuesday evening. Maybe just to, to deviate off because because you mentioned there, Sean, about like the the ACLs obviously running in like an autumn to spring campaign, and, and it seems likely that the or I, I might, it might have actually been confirmed that from from 2026. The J League is going to switch and start starting the season in, in in August and then running through to the spring, that following the the ACL calendar and also the, the European calendar. And I know I think it was last year or a couple of years ago you talked with with John Steele and on, on J Talk Extra Time about the implications of that. And it seems very much that it's been taken with with the J One clubs in mind more with the, the ACL and things like that. How do you see this decision overall with what maybe? I'm sure J2 and J3, they'll, they'll talk about it on, on J Talk Extra Time, but with J1 clubs in mind, how positive or negative are you on, on this, this decision? Um, it's a fairly boring answer, I'm afraid, but I I don't really care one way or the other. I've not I've not sat down and and, and filtered through all of the, the, the facts of it or one way or the other, but I feel like it, it's like so many discussions these days not not just in football but in any walk of life where where everybody's just looks at it from their point of view so the, the clubs obviously that are against it um are against it because it affects them directly with the clubs up in the north you know having to deal with playing in in colder colder times of the year um so i you know i think it's it can be worked around i feel like clubs do it now anyway and the likes of Akita and, and Yamagata in J2 tend to play their first three or four games of the season away from home anyway, because they can't play at home. And, and you get these weird things in Japan. I know it's a it's kind of a one-off as opposed to a regular thing, but you know Tokyo had to play, I forget how many games it was in a row, away from home the year of the Olympics because their mm-hmm. venue was being used. So it, it's not ideal. Um, but I don't know if it's necessarily a good enough reason for, you know, say there's six, eight clubs that it affects negatively. Does that mean that the other 52, 54 clubs shouldn't switch and, and maybe gain some benefits? I don't know if that's that's necessarily fair. And on the flip side, but the argument of like, well, players transfer in the middle of the season to Europe and it affects teams. Well, yeah, it does. But. Does it affect enough teams? Again, I think it comes down to the the same argument I just made. Does, does it affect enough of the sixty teams that it makes it worthwhile? Um, personally, I don't like the idea that everybody just has to do what, what they do in Europe. That you know, it's fine for leagues around the world to to play at different times. It's fine for things to happen differently. It, it then does obviously cause certain difficulties when it comes to the ACL or you know 
you get Premier League clubs complaining that their African players have to go to the AFCON every couple of years or whatever. And it's like, well, <laughs> I'm sorry, but this competition is happening and, and fans in Nigeria and in South Africa and in in Senegal, whatever, want to see their national teams and they're their best players. You're signing international players. They're the best players in the world. So when you sign them, you know that they're the best players in their country and they play for their national team. So you've got a squad of 30-odd players. Use them. So I, I don't like the idea that, you know, not everyone should have to just fit in with Europe. Um, but, yeah, I don't I don't have a a strong opinion on it either way. So yeah, sorry, it's a fairly uh, a fairly middling answer, but yeah, I yeah I'm not again. Maybe if I sat down and really looked at the the arguments for and against and the actual um you know the what what results what what it would actually result in, maybe I would um sort of lean one way or the other. But at the minute, I'm yeah I'm sort of a, a little bit indifferent, and it seems that like the league would do it in a gradual way anyway. It wouldn't just suddenly switch. Um, instantly it would kind of gradually stagger towards it so you know we've had the two-stage thing um, the J-League has constantly tweaked its system they used to have a stupid system with you know penalties at the end of every game and you had to have a winner so I, I think they have always tweaked systems and things and yeah maybe they would switch to it and then after a few years realize yeah actually you know it's not really it's not really doing it for us maybe we will maybe we'll work back so I think yeah people are always kind of averse to change um in well in life in general but but in football certainly but you know nothing is forever so they you know if it didn't work out there's there's nothing to say they can't at some point um go back to to the way it is now if, it, if things weren't working yeah it's, it's an interesting point i'm sure it's something that will come up in, in kind of future episodes as, as we get closer to 2026 and it was quite interesting what you said about people kind of acting in, in self-interest because I, I read a kind of translated version of, of the kind of original press release and it said that the da- all the data shows that the players and teams' performances drop in August because it's so hot, but the clubs wanted to continue playing in August because that's they can sell out the stadiums or they can sell more merchandise and have more mm. promotions and summer events dur- during the Auburn period, which I yeah. thought was quite interesting because if you start the season in August and, like for example, Gamba have their summer expo, I mean, that works because it's in the summer, but it also works because it's halfway through the season. You can't really sell your summer jersey and your first choice jersey side by side because then it kind of becomes an either or. So, oh, well, don't, don't get me started on <laughs> stupid summer jerseys either. That, that is absolute <laughs> nonsense. That needs to get right in the bin. <laughs> you know, it's late, late at night, so let's, let's move on, Ben, to another topic. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Yeah, it's um, yeah, definitely a, a topic with uh, pros and cons to it, and uh, yeah, we can uh, we can get more into it as Johnny says. Uh, yeah, closer to the time, but uh, I think the reaction in our Patreon only line group has definitely been negative, uh, to say the least. All right, then. So yeah, all roads. Sorry, lead I know to... I know you want to wrap. I know you want to wrap, but what? As I'm I'm not in the line group. What? Why are people against it? What is the the main reason that people are against it? Uh, for a lot of clubs, it's yeah the the the, the problems with the, with the weather, with snow, and um, yeah mainly thinking of teams up in the north who, as you said yourself, yeah aren't able to play games uh, generally in uh, in February. Um, so we might need to have a uh, a long winter break, um, which we do at the moment, which is called the end of the season at the moment. So uh, <laughs> yeah. how it's going to how it's going to work for 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 clubs up in 
Um, obviously, Sapporo play at the Dome, but I mean, they still have access problems with uh, surrounding snow. But uh, yeah, uh, teams in uh, in J2 and J3 who play uh, up, up the north of uh, Honshu will definitely have uh, logistical problems, I think. Mm. Um, okay. So yeah, uh, a number of uh, yeah weather related concerns for for the most part. Um, but also yeah, getting to a game, but also sitting down in freezing cold and actually enjoying a game. Whether you would take your family to a game in the middle of winter as opposed to the middle of summer, etc. Uh, etc. Et but yeah, um, I'm not sure anyone is in, enjoying Blaublitz Akita games in the heat of summer either. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a miserable, it's a miserable experience, whatever the weather. <laughs> That could be their slogan. That can be their slogan for next season. Join in the misery. Yeah. yeah there we go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. All right then. So uh, yeah, all roads lead to Saitama Stadium on Tuesday night. Well, they lead to Gifu's Nagaragawa Ground on Friday night, gents, because Nagoya are hosting Tosu there in uh, the game that kicks off at match day 31. Johnny, I made sure to triple check the schedule this week so we didn't have another national stadium game on the slate. And it turns out that, yes, Nagoya are playing their final two home games of the season at uh, Gifu's Nagaragawa ground. And that is a bit of a tongue twister, especially at 12.01 at night. But, uh, yes, so that kickstarts the match day. As we've mentioned, uh, Kashiwa and Kawasaki finish it in the only game on Sunday. And uh, that means we have seven other games on the Saturday. So at the top end of the table, Kobe are away at Shonan and uh, Yokohama F. Marinos travel to Fukuoka. And uh, sorry, I did mean to mention when we were talking about Kawasaki Fukuoka, uh, last week, Kazuya Konno was awarded the uh, the J1 Player of the Month for September and his coach, Shigetoshi Hasebe, was awarded the uh, the Manager of the Month award. So huge kudos uh, to them for, uh, yeah, Fukuoka's excellent September and indeed season as a whole. So, um, yeah, I don't know whether Konno will be uh, parading his uh, trophy around on the pitch before uh, Fukuoka kickoff against F. Marinos. There might be a small ceremony, actually. I'm for sure all. he will be. That's something yeah. else that needs to get <laughs> that's definitely, Yeah, now that all I was thinking. ridiculous presentations. Yeah, when I was saying it out loud, that, that's definitely going to happen, isn't it? And his, his <laughs> mother that? will Where's come that on. Where's Konno come from? You, oh, yeah. Where was geez. he before? If only is uh, if only we knew he was good, eh? Yeah, indeed, indeed. So look forward to the presentation of a bouquet of flowers from his uh, mother and father before kickoff <laughs> on uh, on Saturday afternoon. Uh, also in the dog fight, Yokohama FC travel up to Sapporo, so that should be uh, entertainment. Uh, I think, uh, guaranteed up there. And another big game on the slate is Kashima hosting Urawa. So, uh, Johnny, what's your pick of the weekend, mate? Johnny, pick of the weekend. I would have to pick Shonan against Vissel Kobe because it, it touches on both the, the bottom and top of the league. Um, you know, you look at it and think maybe Vissel win kind of comfortably 2-0, two, two but it is the J-League and Shonan do have a lot riding on it. So, you know, if they, they get a good start, get an early goal, maybe get another penalty, I think I think anything anything could could happen in that one. Uh, now, you mentioned that, um, you know, Kono and Hasebe got player and coach of the month. That means Marinas are almost guaranteed to win it for Quoker, which means Vissel have to have to really match them. And I really like it again that both those games run at the same time, so you have the kind of countdown clock. So that, that, that'll be pretty good. I mean, I'd love to say Serizo Gamba, but Serizo can't score and Gamba can't stop teams from scoring. And I think realistically that game is going to be overshadowed by the, the big baseball game. Buffaloes are playing Tigers in the, the Japan series, so... 
yeah, it'll be interesting for me to watch, but I wouldn't really recommend that. So yeah, I, I'd choose I'd choose Jonan versus Vissel. How about yourself, Sean? Which which game would you would you recommend? Oh, it's got to be Kyoto against Alberic, surely. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you, you've picked the the only game that matters. I think that that is the one. Um, yeah, everything else is just yeah, as you said, Cerezo Gamba. Ordinarily, that would jump out. Kashima Urawa is is a huge rivalry. Neither of those clubs like each other. Um, Marinos obviously still in the race away at Avispa, but I mean, yeah, Vissel Shonan is is where everybody, you know, aside from fans of the other teams, everybody will be looking at that because it has bearings on on both ends of the table. You know, if Vissel slip up, it, it gives Marinos possibly a bit of encouragement, um, and if Shonan lose. And Yokohama managed to pick something up away at Sapporo. Suddenly, the the, the relegation dogfight is is even more intense. So yeah, I think that is pretty much the only game that that matters this weekend. Indeed, indeed. All right then. Thanks, uh, Sean, ever so much for joining us. It's uh, been a, a while, but uh, as I said at the start, great to have you, yourself on with uh, with Johnny for the first time since uh, well, Johnny stepped into the co-host chair. And um, yeah, always terrific to catch up with you. So thanks for your, uh, sharing your thoughts on uh, yeah a myriad of topics, and uh, we look forward to catching up with you again soon. Uh, keep warm on Tuesday night. Thank you very much. Not at all. And uh, yeah, if anyone has any complaints about things I've said, send them to uh, at JSoccer on Twitter. (laughs) 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 Terrific terrific stuff then. All right. um, Yeah, Johnny, uh, another tremendous episode. Uh, Great to catch up with Sean, as we said. And um, yeah, looking forward to what's going to transpire in uh, in match day 31 uh, on, uh, on next week's episode with you. Yes, it's always good to have the, the full nine-game slate to, to get through. Now, we've got we've got one more before they take another break. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to talking about it ne- next week. And uh, I, I don't know if we'll be guest list or we might might be able to get a, a big guest in. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of um, developments at both ends of the league. So, yeah, uh, have a good week, everyone. And I'll, I'll talk to everyone next week. All right, tremendous stuff then. So that's it for this week's episode of the JTalk podcast. Uh, Johnny and I would like to thank Sean Carroll again for his time on this week's episode. We'd like to thank our patrons for their ongoing support on Patreon. And listeners, we'd like to thank you for listening wherever you are. We'll be back next week to review J1 Match Day 31. Speak to you then. Bye for now. The JTalk podcast. Yes, 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 yes.